Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. We are uh, moving through ever so slowly through the book of Romans, and uh, I've stopped counting the number of sermons, and here we are nearing the end of chapter 1. And uh, so I don't make any promises about picking up speed or anything like that. I had grand designs for today that uh, we would be able to cover a large chunk, and we will indeed cover what uh, you have in your bulletin, Lord willing. But uh, when I think of taking too big a bites, it's, uh, it's too rich to take big bites. You've kind of got to go slowly to be able to uh, catch what is written here. And so if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and uh, you have an outline in your bulletin there that you can uh, take notes in. Uh, you can use the blanks that I've given you. You can use that however you like. It's intended to be an aid for you in uh, remembering and thinking through what we've uh, covered in our day today. That's what it's for. Um, so make use of that. But we are in uh, Romans chapter 1, and uh, we have covered in the first half of this chapter uh, Paul's introduction and his greetings and his uh, introduction of his ministry and even introduction to the gospel. And of course, he, uh, he he gave the theme for the book there in 16 and 17 when he's talking about his the gospel that he proclaims and that in it the righteousness of God is revealed uh, from faith for faith. And that's that's the theme of this epistle. And then he shifts gears in uh, verse 18, and we, uh, for the next several chapters, actually all the way through uh, about chapter 3 and verse 20, it's going to be pretty dark. There will be moments of, of uh, light in there, but it's pretty dark because he is uh, explaining why the gospel is necessary, why it's important, and it's because of the dark background that is our sin. And so it's going to... Uh, be dark for a while. And so I want to read our passage today. We're going to start in verse 18, and uh, we will read all the way down through verse 27, though we're focusing today um, on a shorter piece of that, 21 through 27. But let's pick up in chapter 1 of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations 
for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning trusting you. And we take this opportunity to worship you. We take this opportunity to declare indeed that you are blessed forever. That there is none like you. There is no one glorious like you. You alone are creator. You alone are all wise, all good. You alone are God. There is not another somewhere that competes with you. And so we worship you and we give you honor as our God, as our creator, as our Lord, as our redeemer. We give you honor, we bow down to you, and we praise you for what you have done for us. Because even as we learn in this passage and in the next few, we see our own darkness. We see the sin of our hearts. It's never very far from us if we have eyes to see. But we have redemption in Christ. We praise you that you sent Jesus to redeem us. That you sent him to obey where we have disobeyed. And to bear that dreadful penalty, that curse that we have incurred because of our actions. Because of our sin. That he would take that upon himself that we might have forgiveness. That we might be able to stand before you because of what Christ has done. And so we praise you for Jesus. And this morning as we turn to your word, we recognize in this passage deep subjects, painful subjects. In our day and age, in our culture, very controversial subjects. Father, we want to see and understand what your word says. We want to do so clearly. But we, we not only want to understand it, we want to believe it. We want to love it. And we want to do it. So I pray that even in the next few minutes, while your word is being proclaimed, while we have your Bible open in front of us, pray that you would work in our hearts. That we would be drawn to you. That we would be drawn to greater loyalty to you because of who you are. That we would value what you value because of who you are, our creator. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing on our time. We ask that you, by your spirit, would have your way in our hearts. Help us to focus. Help us to stay here. Pray that you would limit distraction, keep it away, and do your work in us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a young man, particularly as a teenager, my mom would do this. 
My mom uh, worked at the hospital, still works at the hospital. And uh, so she worked long hours. She's a nurse and uh, works, you know, too much and doesn't get paid enough. And the whole that's always been the case. And so she had these children. She would leave at home. And so she would expect us to, like, do chores and things around the house. Some of you may be familiar with that concept, right? <laughs> and so she would leave a list because if she if she told me every chance was there that I was going to forget it, right? So she would leave a list and it would be a very simple list of what she expected me to do. My dad would leave a list for what needed to be done outside and my mom would leave a list for what needed to be done on the inside. And it was uh, it was a, a very explicit list and it was kind of funny because she likes to abbreviate things. And so sometimes it was a guessing game what she really meant, but it didn't take, uh, it didn't take rocket scientists to figure out. She wanted me to clean uh, the bathroom and vacuum the living room and do the dishes and et cetera, et cetera, right? Well, I, I wasn't a very good child. I, I didn't like to get in trouble. I have never liked to get in trouble. But uh, apparently, I like to wait until the last possible moment. And I have very clear recollection of hustling through the dishes while I was looking over my shoulder out the window to see if mom was driving up yet, right? Because I got to finish those dishes. She'll never know that I just finished them, right? Well, I was, uh, I was rarely openly rebellious, but, but uh, I definitely did as little as, as I could get away with. But uh, we know when we give instructions to someone, my mom would give me a list, right? And she knew when I completed that list, she knew when I had done what she said, even though I had done the minimal required work as as I felt obligated to do. Uh, but it, if I had done exactly the opposite of her list, for example, if she said, you know, mop the kitchen, if I instead had gone outside and gotten mud on my boots and came and walked in the kitchen and trashed the kitchen floor, that's exactly the opposite of what she said, right? If she said, uh, you know, do the dishes and instead I had pulled out every dish and, you know, dirtied everything and left it on the counter, right? Doing exactly the opposite of what she said. It was bad enough what I did, you know, trying to get by, doing the minimum and, and not always getting the list done. But if you, if you take the list, the expectations that you're, uh, that have been given to you and you do precisely the opposite, that, that's an even greater degree of rebellion, right? That, it, it's almost like you're trying to communicate, I am rebelling against what you told me to do. I was never trying to communicate that to my mom. I was really just trying to, you know, not, not uh, face the consequences of not having obeyed, but I wasn't trying to rebel and I wasn't trying to communicate specifically. I'm rebelling against your rules, uh, against what you said, but had I done the opposite of her list, it would have been a pretty clear communication and that would have been bad news for Brennan. And so uh, we have a passage that, that goes before our passage. If you would flip back to probably page one of your Bible. Page 1, or at least Genesis chapter 1. And the reason I come to this passage is because this is, this is the expectation that was laid out by God from the very beginning. We're in Genesis chapter 1. Sin hasn't even entered the picture yet. Right? This is before the fall. Things are idyllic. Adam and Eve have not sinned 
They are not in rebellion. This is God explaining the creation and the purpose for which he made creation and, and the f- different functions of different things. And I, I want to pick up a passage that specifically addresses our passage today, or rather our passage today is built upon this passage. If you'll look at Genesis chapter 1 and uh, verse 26. You'll need to keep these words in mind as we go through our passage today because you'll see them again. Then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth probably all of us have heard those words before. There's nothing new there. Genesis chapter 1, you know, most people who even fail at trying to read the Bible every year, though they try, they make it through Genesis 1, usually, right? So you've read these words, you're familiar with these words, and there are a lot of them that reappear in our passage. If you want to make a list on the side or underline in your Bible, here are some of the key words that are in common between those two passages. Image. Did you notice that? God made man in his image. And what does man do in our passage? He decides to worship and serve images, right? He turns to images instead. Uh, The word resembling in Romans. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Resembling, it's the same word as translated likeness in Genesis 1. The same word. Man, of course, is in common between the two. Birds. Creeping things. Reptiles. That's in common between the two. Male, female. Some of your English versions, maybe even most of the English versions in uh, Romans chapter 1, when you get down to 26 and 27, they translate it as uh, their women exchange natural relations. The word is really females. And then in the next verse, males. My English version says men and women, but it, it, it shouldn't. It's males and females. It's, there's a clear distinction in the original language. And that clear distinction goes back to what we saw in Genesis chapter 1. God created them male and female, very distinct words about sex, about gender, not just man and woman, generally speaking. So in our passage that we looked at in Genesis chapter 1, we have God explaining the purpose for which he made man. It was to function as his vice regent, function as the one who was going to be the king under the great king, to rule over creation, to have dominion over everything. Right, And he, he made him a specific way. He made him male and female to be able to do that. Because the command he gave to them was, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and rule over it. 
The point being, this is the way you're going to spread your rule and dominion over this earth is by being male and female, being married, having babies, being fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, so that the image of God is spread around the world. And that's the, that's the uh, by the way, that's the first command given in Scripture. That's the first commandment right there. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. And that's all kind of one command bound into one, though it's in several different words. That's the first command in Scripture. And so that's the way creation was to be governed. You had God Almighty who was the creator of all things, and He had placed the man, His image, His vice-regent, there on the earth to rule over it, to exercise dominion over the earth. And so that was what man was to do. Man was to reproduce to do that. And all the while, you have Adam and his family, uh, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And they're taking care of the garden. They're, they're tending it. They're, they're serving there. Those are the same words that are used of priests when they worship and serve in the temple. So all the while, Adam and Eve weren't just you know, weeding tomatoes or whatever. They were glorifying God. They were specifically worshiping God and what they were doing. By the way, it probably wouldn't have been weeds in the tomatoes in the garden, but just in passing. (laughs) So we see evidence all around us of this being broken, right? So that's the standard. That's the list of the way it was supposed to be in Genesis chapter 1. Then we look at the world around us. Remember we said from verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, and we'll spend the rest of our time probably in Romans chapter 1. From verse 18 there, Paul said the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, even now. And this is part of the way we have that revelation, is by the reversing, the undoing of all of those instructions and those purposes for which God made man in the beginning. And so with all of that kind of as the background, we come to our passage today and we're going to deal with uh, 21 through 27. And uh, we see that in this judgment that's being revealed against God, uh, uh, by God against uh, sinful mankind, the wrath that's being poured out. And we saw last week that everybody is without excuse because they, they had knowledge of God, but they denied, they suppressed the truth. They held that truth underwater because they didn't want to see it and they actively do so. And then we get to verse uh, 21 and he says, uh, in, at the end of 20, uh, verse 20, he says, so they are without excuse for, verse 21, although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it starts off with their refusal to honor God. Although they knew God, they, this doesn't mean they had saving knowledge of him, like, like, uh, John will speak of in first John, the one who knows God, et cetera, being a term for someone being saved. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about having an understanding that God exists, that he is the creator, and that we owe him everything, including honor and thanks. That basic understanding, and there might be some other things involved in there, our responsibility before him, etc. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They refused to honor God. They knew He was there. They knew they owed their existence to Him. 
just by the very uh, nature of being able to interact with this creation. It's a basic assumption that we all know. It's something we, we have, the believer and the unbeliever alike. But instead of responding in honor and gratitude to our Creator, what we have mankind doing is refusing to do so. They did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. When we look at creation, we observe it. We, we, we know that some, someone made all of this. But the natural man refuses to honor that one who made all of this. When we observe uh, people doing wonderful things, you know, the, whether it's an athletic uh, accomplishment that they're able to do or, or extreme generosity or self-sacrifice, does it lift us to give praise and thanks to the God who created such a wonderful being? Or do instead we worship that being? Natural man has refused to give God honor for what he has done. Every time we experience joy or pleasure or wonder, shouldn't we be moved to give thanks to the Creator who made such things? Who made us with the capacity to understand and enjoy those things? Who created those experiences and, and those events in our lives that we might enjoy? Shouldn't we be uh, raising our hearts in thanks to God and yet... The natural man doesn't do that. And it doesn't stop there, does it? One scholar put it this way. He said, The foundational sin of refusing to thank and glorify God leads to other sins. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. And so they refuse to honor God. There's also futility in their thinking. Look at what happens in the second half of uh, verse 21 there. Uh, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The, the natural and reasonable thoughts when we look at creation and we see cause and effect, we see commonality, we see beauty, and we see the, the, how, how creation works in such wondrous ways, the natural thoughts that would arise from that are that God did this, some Something, someone bigger than this creation formed this creation. Something, someone wiser than this creation formed this creation. Our thoughts should be driven that direction, and yet they are not. And Paul says here that's because they're, they, they have become futile in their thinking and their f- foolish hearts have been darkened. You see, man is, man is wiser than to acknowledge some invisible being out there who made all of this stuff. That, that's pretty childish, actually, for you to think such a thing. For you to bow down to, to some invisible being that, that you've never seen, that's, uh, that's primitive. That's pretty infantile of you to do that, right? That's the attitude of the natural man regarding our worship of God. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. The very wisdom that they started with, which is the foundational wisdom for all wisdom and understanding, They've denied that because they are wiser than that wisdom. They are wiser than the wisdom of knowing that there really is a God, knowing we really are responsible to Him. They're, they're much wiser than that. In doing so, claiming to be wise, they have become fools. And actually, they've denied the very foundational truth of their existence. 
the very truth upon which every truth is built. And they have washed away that foundation. And so their mind is futile and their, their reason has been twisted and their heart has been darkened. It's no longer a reliable means of finding truth. They've become blind in their thinking because they deny what is plain to them. And as a result, they take a tragic turn and they make a very foolish exchange of wanting idols over God's glory. This is the first exchange of three that are going to happen in our passage today. Three different times they exchanged one thing for another. They exchanged one thing for another. And this is the first one of those. They wanted idols over God's glory. Look at verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they made this exchange. I want to look specifically at what that exchange involves. We, we could have, this is part of those, uh, the richness of this passage. We could camp here for a couple of weeks on this verse 23, and we wouldn't go amiss by doing so. There is so much in here. Look at the exchange that they make. They exchange the glory of the immortal God. Okay, that's what they had. That's what they start off with. They had the glory of the immortal God. Three different words. Glory, immortality, and God. They didn't want that. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Everything has been reversed. The reason I had you underline or write to the side of your notes there, those words that appear, is because we have them clustered together in this verse. In verse 23, you have words clustered together there that are in Genesis 1, uh, in uh, the, the verses we read earlier. They're all piled together. By the way, when you're doing Bible study and you want to know what's in the author's mind, This is one way you can know what's in the author's mind is if he's using words, a cluster of words together that appears somewhere else clustered together in another place in the Bible. When that happens, you have a very big hint that he's thinking about that passage. And that's exactly what is going on here with with the words uh, image and likeness and man and birds and creeping things. Same words in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 1 appear again in our passage here. And this exchange is a, is a ridiculous exchange. It's exactly uh, flipped around what they started off with. They get rid of true glory in their worship. They had the glorious God to worship, but they didn't want Him. That was inadequate. So they get rid of that true glory. They get rid of the, 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 the radiance, the sum total of God's perfections. And they set that aside in favor of images, copies, pictures that they made with their own hand. What an exchange. The beauty, the glory of God on the one hand. But give that up and draw a picture of a lizard and worship that instead.
So they gave up that glory. They were created in the image of God himself. They, they, were, uh, they de- derived their position, their existence from God himself, uh, finding the definition of who they are in God himself as God's image. But they get rid of that in order to worship different images. Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see the... You see the exchange? They were made in the image of God. The very image of God to represent God on this earth. To put Him on display. And they set that aside. For images, for pictures. They made pictures of themselves, worshiping the images resembling mortal man. And maybe even worse, birds and animals and reptiles. What was the original creation supposed to be? We, we read it. You've got God, creator over all things, has placed a vice regent, has, has placed a king, a prince on this earth. And what's that king, prince supposed to do? Rule over all of created order. Right? And so you have this very clear position of of God, the Creator, with His image, man, and then you have the created order, including animals below that. And what has man done? Instead of giving the worship and honor that's due God, instead He gives worship and honor to those He should be ruling over. Those who are supposed to be under Him. Those He's supposed to have dominion over. And He worships them instead there's one other key word in there that uh, in Romans chapter 1 that's uh, uh, very clear. Verse 23 again, and exchange the glory of the immortal God. The word immortal or incorruptible, maybe some of your Bibles have, for images resembling mortal man and other creatures. Mortal man, corruptible. So whereas they were in a position to worship and honor and give glory to the immortal, incorruptible God. Instead, they turn aside and worship that which is dying, that which is corruptible, that which is changeable. You see how everything is being reversed. The worship is all being reversed. What a dishonor to God. Refusal to worship the God they knew leads to futility and thinking, which leads to the foolish trade of the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and beasts. But Paul's not done here. He talks about the body becoming dishonored. Look at the following verse, 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. They're given up to lusts. There are three different times when God in this passage, we're only going to cover two of them this time when we get to the next uh, final concluding paragraph of this chapter, we'll get to the third one, but where God gives them up to something. We read that and we think God is removing the restraints 
and letting them do what they want to do. And that is certainly true. But that's a little bit passive. And this passage doesn't mean it in a passive way. God gives them up in such a way where their lusts are intensified because of his giving them up. He doesn't just, uh, it's as if he's been holding them back from running forward, running forward, running forward, and he lets go and they just do what they were naturally going to do. He actually intensifies it. Oh, you want it? Okay, why don't you go all in? Why don't you go all in? And so he gives them up. And there are three times in, our, in, our, uh, in the end of Romans chapter 1 where that happens. And two of those are in today's. And it's a, it's a, a horrifying idea. A horrifying idea. You think of some of the things, some of the, uh, the baser desires that you have, some of the more evil uh, temptations that have come or whatever. And to think that, that, that these people are not just allowed to do those things, but, but those things have been intensified. God has given them up in the very lusts of their hearts. And remember, where we are in our chapter, this is the wrath of God being revealed. This is a form of present judgment by this happening. By letting them continue in their sin and even intensifying it in some ways. This is the revelation of God's wrath against sinful and rebellious man. He gives them up in the lusts of their hearts. Their, their evil and, and, uh, and even unnatural desires, they get to pursue those. And those desires even become intensified so that they're made worse. Their evil desires and their unnatural cravings are already inflamed by the imaginary world that they've created with their idolatry. And in His wrath, God gives them up in their lusts in a a way that their desires intensify and become even more base and even more evil. And so they run headlong into the impurity of their choice. They pursue it with all their heart. That idea of impurity is connected in the New Testament very often with sexual immorality, and that's certainly the case here. Because as they seek to fulfill their perverted lust, they defile their bodies. Their bodies uh, become merely vehicles for fulfilling their own desires. It, it doesn't matter to them if what they do disfigures their body. You can, you can pay big money and have your body disfigured to meet your desires. It doesn't matter if that's the case or if, uh, if, if what they do merely weakens their body or uh, just subjects them to uh, degrading passions. It's their body, and they will use it how they see fit. The purpose for which God created their body is utterly irrelevant. It doesn't even enter into the conversation. So they are given up to lusts. And for their part, they give up truth. Look at this exchange. This is the second exchange that happens here. The first part of 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged the truth that God really is. And they prefer what deep down they know to be a lie. How can there be any legitimate knowledge and wisdom with that being your first step of thought? There can't be. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
That's where it starts. And so if you've stumbled in step one, what subsequent steps will be straight? Although they knew God in their hearts, knew that glory and thanks were due to God, they set all of that aside in favor of something that's, that suited them better, something that was maybe less demanding or less restrictive to their passions. They gave up truth, and they give up true worship. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, verse 25, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Here they were in a position to give true worship to the one who is worthy of that worship, the one who made them, the one who designed them, who gave them life, who put them in this world. And turning from worship of that true being, worship that would be a true and and desirable and honorable and blessed worship, that's turned aside to worship other things. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The thing that had been created, the thing that by nature, is under the dominion of God. And they worship that thing instead of the God who created and rules over that thing. They give up true worship. The narrative has gotten so tragic, it seems, that Paul Paul pauses for a moment to throw in there about the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He wants to remind himself and his readers this is a a tragic, tragic exchange that is happening. But God is still due glory. And so he takes the moment, even while he's talking about those who refuse to bless God, those who refuse to worship and honor him, he pauses in the middle of writing and he says, Blessed be God forever. Amen. And so he worships God even in the midst of that. Right before he gets to Our next paragraph, their passions have not only been intensified, they're not only based on lies, not only based on false worship, they become unnatural. 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. They've been given up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. This is the second time in our passage God gives them up. Hands them over. It's not just that He cuts the leash and lets them run, but it's intensified. It's a form of judgment that they would be able to pursue this. Passion here is a a very strong term. It's not used often in the Bible. And sometimes when it is, it's translated, uh, it translates the idea of mourning, being in grief, mourning someone's death. The same word can be translated here regarding lustful passions, regarding sensual passions. The idea of that passion is a, a deep down driving weight within the heart. It affects the way you think. It affects the way you make decisions. It affects your outlook on life. 
In fact, when we counsel those who are mourning, we counsel them, don't make any big decisions while you're mourning. You may regret those decisions because you're not thinking straight right now. Because that weight of mourning is so great that it impairs your decisions. We take that same idea of mourning, that same word, and it can be translated passions here, but it's the idea of such a great weight of, of lust and unnatural desire that it affects your whole being, the decisions you make, the way you see the world. It's that heavy a passion, and, and passion would be bad enough, but these are dishonorable passions. Paul speaks about passions elsewhere in passing. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses three through five. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. These passions are powerful and they are driving. And he says here they are dishonorable. Dishonorable passions degrading. They're shameful. Biblically speaking, normal heterosexual desires are treated in Scripture as something that's good, but to be controlled because there is a proper outlet for such a thing. This is nature. This is the way God has created man and woman. These are natural. They're part of God's design for us. They have their proper place in the biblical marriage covenant. But these passions being discussed, they are disgraceful. They are dishonorable. They are shameful. They are not in line with nature. And that's what he gets to in the second half of 26 when he talks about giving up what is natural. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 26 For their women, that should say females, by the way, for their females exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Contrary to nature. Paul is thinking back here. By the way, this is the third exchange in our, in our section today. Paul is thinking back here to nature, not as uh, my, my own personal nature, as in it's my nature to be quiet or it's my nature to be loud or it's against my nature to interrupt someone or that sort of internal psychological nature about my personality, about how I'm wired and how I'm made, that's probably very different from the way you're done. That's not what he has in mind. When Paul uses the idea of nature, he's referring back to creation. The way you were created and the purpose for which you were created in the way that you were created. He's talking about God's natural design when he made man in his image. And how did he make him? Male and female. And what instruction did he give him? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. He's talking about that nature, meaning God built you the way he did for a reason, and the reason is spelled out in Genesis chapter 1. Anything contrary to that is contrary to nature, meaning the way God created nature. And so when he's talking here about nature, this isn't a way that just has to do with our internal psychological makeup, as in, well, you don't really know what's in my nature. And so for me, it's not contrary to nature to do this thing because I really am truly deep down bent this way. That's not what he's talking about. That kind of language, that kind of talk would have been foreign. He's referring to the created order. 
the way nature was created. They are giving up what is natural. Dr. Douglas Moo says, Nature denotes the natural order, but as reflective of God's purposes. God designed it that way, and He told us that in Genesis chapter 1, and He gave us the purpose for it, and that's the word nature. I would remind you again, in in 26 and 27, each of those times man and woman or men and women appears there, it it should be males and females. It's specifically zeroing in on our design as a male or as a female. It's, it's not a more general term of men and women. This is specifically about sexuality. And uh, with those thoughts in mind, when we think back of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we get a clearer picture of why this is such a clear disruption of the created order. The purpose for which God designed and created man and woman, male and female. Their sexuality as male and female was an integral part of the purpose He gave them in creation. They were to rule over creation as God's vice regent by means of being fruitful and multiplying. And in the design, in the very words that He speaks to them and about them, procreation is very central to that design. And it's the intent of God in creating man as his image over creation. That's the purpose, the stated purpose for sexuality given in the Bible. And homosexuality is another reversal of the created order. But, it, but it's not just one of many. It's the exact point-by-point point reversal of nature. And that's why he speaks so strongly about it. That's why he can use such language about it. And that's why he spends time in laying out the pagan world and the sins and rebellions of the pagan world so specifically and ends up here on this topic is because it's the exact reversal. It's the exact undoing of God's created order and God's created design. It exactly countermands the first and most basic command in Scripture to serve as God's image by being fruitful, multiplying, and thus ruling over all of the earth as God's image bearer. And that has all been reversed. Finally, they pay a fitting penalty. Men committing shameless acts with men. I'm in the middle of 27. Males committing shameless acts with males and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What does that mean? What does that mean, the due penalty for their error? Well, all, all kinds of ideas have been put forward. I've heard it mentioned that it's, it's, uh, it's purely the degradation of the body when a male uh, acts as he should not, when a female acts as she should not. I've heard it put forward that AIDS or some other STDs would be the fitting penalty. I don't, I don't think those are adequate. That's not what's being discussed here. So what is the fitting penalty? Well, in the context of Genesis chapter 1 and in the context of Romans chapter 1, here's what I think the penalty is. They are not fruitful. They do not multiply. They do not fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. In other words, they can't perpetuate. 
in all of Scripture, part of the blessing of God involves family. Family created after the Genesis 1 design. And that is not physically possible in these relationships. They can't procreate. They wipe themselves from existence by having no successive generations. They can't reproduce themselves. And so once again, we see the judgment of God is wrapped up in their sin. Now, of course, same-sex couples can, can have babies. But you notice they have to borrow from the opposite worldview in order to be able to do it. They've got to borrow from a homosexual situation, uh, uh, from a heterosexual situation in order to be able to have children in a homosexual situation, whether it's by adoption or whether it's by some kind of artificial insemination. Their own worldview cannot perpetuate itself. It will die out. But of course they do borrow. They do borrow. And so it continues that way. But, but the, the inability to enjoy the most basic command and familial expectation in Scripture, because of their actions, because of the choices they make, because of those unnatural desires, because of that lifestyle that they've chosen, they are unable to enjoy the most basic blessings of being human. Now, there are many who cannot have children, who would love to have children. Those aren't the ones I'm talking about. That's not what I'm addressing here. There, there is the mercy of God, and I believe in adoption, and I believe that God has very great mercy, and, and I, I pray for, for couples who are infertile. I pray for fertility for them. And, and my heart goes out to them and breaks for them. And that's not what's being discussed here. What's being discussed here is a lifestyle that has been chosen, that has been pursued, that cannot perpetuate itself. And thus, the due penalty for their error is what they experience in themselves as they die in that and unable to perpetuate. Now this is heavy. This is a heavy topic and I realize that. I want to close with just a just a few points of application to think about. My, my main point today, the main purpose for, for this message today is to explain as clearly as I can from Scripture Paul's argument on the topic, and we see that it's also the argument from Genesis chapter 1, on the topic of homosexuality. Because we live in a world where you hear about it, it's, it's uh, becoming more and more normal that actually people who would say the kinds of things that I've said today would be considered homophobes. It, uh, it could be considered hate speech. It will certainly not gain you friends on Facebook. But we have to understand what Scripture says on the topic. I believe we need to be gentle about it. I believe we need to be loving about it. I believe we need to present the gospel in that context. But we must hold the line on what Scripture teaches on the topic. And we cannot budge an inch on this when it comes to whether this is right or wrong because of the argument that Paul makes right here in Romans chapter 1. It's the very design of God that we be heterosexual. Male 
and female, he created them. That language is very intentional. And so we must hold the line and we must believe what Paul teaches about this topic. And that's the main point of our passage today or of my uh, talk on this passage today. A couple of points of application. And we'll go through these pretty quickly. The essence of sin, this is from uh, Tom Schreiner in his commentary on the book of Romans. He said, the essence of sin is a rejection of God's glory and honor. Sin doesn't consist first and foremost in acts that transgress God's law. Particular sins all stem from a rejection of God as God, a failure to give him honor and glory. And you saw that in our passage. The downward spiral that ended up in these degrading passions and this degrading behavior and which, which caused people to, to have that very judgment, the, the just reward, the punishment in their own body, the, that started with the rejection of who God is. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. And that's when things began to go south. And that's what Schreiner is saying. Faith, it's rooted in beliefs. When they give up honoring God as God, it's a slippery slope. And it doesn't end up this way for everyone. You don't end up, not, not every unbeliever ends up in 26 and 27. They'll end up in 28 and following. We'll see that. But it begins with a failure to honor God as God, to give Him the honor and glory He's due, first of all. Second of all, the, the concept that, uh, and there's a, there's a cry in the, uh, in the, in the, the uh, so-called pro-choice movement, the pro-abortion movement, uh, my body, my choice. Baloney. God created your body. He designed it the way He did, and He had a purpose for doing so. And He, as the creator of all things, including your body, is the only one that gets to call those kind of shots. It is not your body, your choice. That has application in all, almost all areas of life. Thirdly, the wrath being revealed is directed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But we need to remember that all ungodliness and unrighteousness is rooted in the suppression of truth. This is related to the first point. It's rooted in unbelief. We look at the sins of this passage and in the passage to come, and we may be tempted to wag our fingers at those people, those people who are like that. I can't believe it. Remember, the root is unbelief. And every unbeliever will receive the full wrath of God for their own sins, even if their sin doesn't look like that. Unbelief is deadly. It's deadly. I want to conclude with this. I talked about two instances in this passage where God gave them up. God gave them up. And that was, those are terrible truths. But there's another time in Romans where God gives up. Same verb, God gives them up. Would you, would you turn to Romans chapter 8? And this is what I want to finish with. Because it's been pretty dark until now, I admit that. Romans chapter 8, you have that same verb used again, to give up. 
where God gives up. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We look at God giving someone up. We look at the ways in which, in, in Romans chapter 1, God gives them up to their sin and they, and, they, and they pursue it with greater intensity. And it's awful. And it's an awful judgment. And there's another time when God gave someone up. And it was awful. And it was an awful judgment. When He gave up His Son. So that my sin, which is found somewhere in Romans chapter 1, and so that your sin, found somewhere in Romans chapter 1, would be laid on Him. And God gave Him up for us all. There is redemption in Christ. And I don't know your background and I don't know your fears, and I don't know your family connections, and I don't know the, the passions you have within you, and I don't, I don't know any of that stuff. But I know that if you will put your faith in Christ, you will find Him to be a perfect Savior. You will find Him to be one who is able, has stood the wrath of God poured out on Him at the cross. Wrath for your sin. Punished in full in Christ. That those things, those passions, that background that I don't know. That sin that is a part of who you are. Placed on Him. And God gave Him up. For us all. And so when we think about this topic, when we think about homosexuality, and when we think about the other sins that are addressed in the passage in Romans chapter 1, we must come back to the gospel itself. Because my sin is found in Romans 1, and yours is too. And you deserve that wrath. You deserve for God to have given you up to even greater sin and more intense sin. More unnatural sin. Oh, but God is merciful. And for everyone who trusts in Christ, we find forgiveness. And we get to worship the one true God. We get to stand before Him holy and righteous in His sight. We get to know Him holy, eternal, immutable, righteous, loving God, and we get to know Him as our Father. And so that's the thought I want us to leave with today when we come away from our passage. I know it's, I know it's heavy, and this is a heavy subject, and we should recognize it as a heavy subject, and we should not dodge the question. But we need to answer it biblically. And part of the answer biblically is the gospel. And so it's my prayer, even, even as I close in prayer, that 
There may be somebody here or somebody listening. Or maybe there's a dear one. Someone you love who is caught in Romans 1. It's my prayer that you would be saved from that. That your dear one would be saved out of that. And find the mercy of God adequate, perfect, and saving. Let's pray. Father, I confess that this very quick tour through this topic that is such an important one and is so center stage in our culture right now, I confess that I don't I don't know that this has been an adequate treatment of it. But Father, I I understand rebellion in my own heart. And I understand because you have shown me the mercy of God. And it's my prayer this morning that you would show that mercy to everyone here. To everyone listening. It's my prayer that you would show that same mercy and that same redemption in Christ even to our dear ones who are on our minds who are not here this morning. That you would draw them to yourself. That you would redeem them from their sins. That they would be restored in right relationship to you the way they were created to be. Father, I pray that you would have mercy on our culture. I pray that you would Work in churches, pastors who are afraid to speak on this topic or perhaps have bought the the, the party line of uh, the 21st century and they've begun to call right wrong and wrong right. Be merciful. I pray that you would give repentance, that we would stand lovingly with the gospel on the word of God, that we would believe what you say. And Father, I rejoice for that redemption that's in Christ. I rejoice that you gave up your son for me. And you who gave him up for me, how will you not also with him freely give me all things? All things that you deem good, all things that that are contributing to my being conformed to the image of Christ. I pray that that would be true for each one here. Father, I rejoice in that. We rejoice that there is forgiveness. We rejoice that, that uh, we have not committed the unpardonable sin, that, that in fact we can be redeemed regardless of our past, regardless of our sin. Draw us to yourself. Draw our eyes to you. May we, may we turn away from those images to you and find you to be a perfect Savior. Father, help us to be truth speakers in love on this topic and on others. Be merciful, we pray, in Jesus' name. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen and amen. God bless you all.